we are at war. We are at war with the money-making, profit-driven capital system. And we need to be thinking about how to humanize and generate the very best possible imaginative way of approaching caring. The, the issue here is we have to move from an I to a we and from a them to an us. Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. If you'd like to support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. We do over 100 episodes a year, and we couldn't do any of that without the support of our patrons. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, and pre-order our co-host Jules Gilpeterson's new book, A Short History of Trans Misogyny, coming January from Verso Books, or request them both at your local library. And of course, you can also follow us at DeathPanel underscore. So I'm here today with my co-host, Phil Rocco. Hey. And the two of us are joined by a great guest, and we're going to be talking about single payer and how expansively and radically we should be thinking about the redistributive potential of ending health insurance as we know and hate it. Dr. William Bronston is a physician organizer who has spent a lifetime fighting for single payer and deinstitutionalization. He is the author of the book Public Hostage, Public Ransom, Ending Institutional America, and is probably best known for a key role that he played in the fight to close the infamous Willowbrook State School in Staten Island, which, if you don't know, is probably one of the most notorious American institutions in the history of the medicalized incarceration of children. We have him here today as one of the many authors of a California state single-player plan that focuses on the idea of lifetime care and rejects the logics that help to build and sustain the total institution system that still dominates today. Dr. Bronston, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to have you here today. Thank you so much. It's really a super honor to be with you. I mean, your work with the health communism has been an inspiration and a huge ice pick in the block of this this barbarousness that we suffer together. Oh, honestly, there's no higher compliment than calling health communism an ice pick. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that, that could you. be that could be a blurb right there. <laughs> but anyways, Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Um before we dive into the single payer model itself and the framework of lifetime care can we start by talking about, you know, your background, the lifetime of work that you've done? We definitely want to do an episode soon talking about the time that you spent at Willowbrook at length. But I think, you know, if you're OK touching on that today briefly, it's really important to sort of knowing where you're coming from and how that informs some of the design for the single payer model that we're going to be talking about today. Because, I mean... Ultimately, we're having a conversation about how a lot of single-payer plans, both current and past, um, are harmed by attempts
attempts to make them more palatable and how single payer activists sometimes shy away from radical thinking or pushing proposals to be more radical at their own peril. And while I think, you know, that might come off to someone um, as glib or something, I assure you it's not. You know, that's definitely informed by experience. And I think the landscape specifically of, you know, the experience that you have um, documenting and organizing against extractive abandonment, that's, you know, very well illustrated by your time at Willowbrook, particularly, you know, the resistance to your attempts to help kids on the inside, like in Ward 76. These are really crucial parts of the context of sort of where the idea of lifetime care comes from. So if you're up for talking about it, to just start us off, I think listeners would really appreciate just hearing from you about your time at Willowbrook. You know, can you talk through some of what happened when you tried to help people and how the institution itself responded to that? What were the politics that you came into Willowbrook with and how did that shape the fight to close Willowbrook? And how did that also eventually sort of influence your approach to single payer? So let me start with a little bit of background. I went into medicine uh, because I had this heartful sense of the need to serve and to care and to comfort. And that has been a prevailing theme and a prevailing emotion throughout my entire life. You know, I'm 84 now and, and I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. When I was uh, when I when I finally decided that I was going to go to medical school, uh, and I figured out that I didn't have to study to be either a plumber or a businessman early on in medicine. I was very involved in working to humanize my medical school and uh, was able to seize control of the student government and organized first a Los Angeles uh, region wide a coalition of progressive health science students, including nursing, dental, public health, med tech and, of course, medicine and then nationwide to put together a thing called the Student Health Organization, which was committed to ending the war in Vietnam. It was committed to supporting the struggle in the South, uh, the civil rights struggle, and primarily aimed at challenging the inhumanity and the alienation, the brittleness, the dehumanization in our medical school curriculum in order to move us closer to caring, comforting and caring and serving in a, a humble, subordinate role to the people that we were taking care of. And um, that led ultimately to my graduation. Uh, and, and, and then I did my internship at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, which was really a profound experience. There was roughly 400 physicians, you know, and, and, and 80 beds. It was the most remarkable regional children's hospital, one of them in, in the country. And this was in the 60s. Right? In the 60s, yes. Yeah. And then when I when I finished my internship, I proceeded to do my psychiatric uh, residency at Menninger's School of Psychiatry in Topeka, Kansas. And the situation there was was really what I walked into was horrendous. Uh, yeah. And the, this was Kansas, bloody Kansas, with the workers mostly of color. And, and the work that they were doing was remarkable and it was overwhelming. Everybody had to work two shifts because of the, of the inhumanity of the work in this whole network of mental hospitals. And we organized a hospital seizure as a job action in 1968 in order to demonstrate the, the shortcomings of striking for health workers striking a health facility. 
And instead, the, the, the union, which was a brand new union that we organized, an AFSCME union, American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, Council 50, essentially uh, came in the, the, the afternoon shift and the night shift came in in the morning. And we notified the administration and all the hospitals and mental hospitals in eastern Kansas that we were going to take over administrative control because of bankruptcy of the administration and their uh, dehumanizing relationship, not only to the workers, but to the crowded uh, patients, except, of course, the private hospital, the Menninger Hospital, that had three workers per client, per patient, wow. mm-hmm. as opposed to the public hospitals, which were strewn across the VA and the state system and so forth. And that led ultimately to my having to leave Kansas after we won that. <laughs> there was a there was a warrant out for my arrest in order to plan our action as we were going along. Everybody had been arrested. So anyway, I, I came to New York and I, I spent a couple of years doing other work. I was involved very heavily with the Shakur family and, and working with the Black Panthers and the Eastern Seaboard with 40 of my confreres from the student health organization that showed up in New York at the same time, which was really uh, incredible. I was two years older than everybody at the time. And, um, and that led to my needing to find a job where they wouldn't check my credentials. Uh, <laughs> You know, and so I had been trained in child development at Children's Hospital by the leader in the country at the time that was a children's hospital. And and so going to Willowbrook State School, even though I knew that the institution was was potentially evil, was the, the likely place for me to go, given my my crazy life. <laughs> and uh, and and when I walked into that place, I was thunderstruck. I was utterly thunderstruck. Uh, I was the only physician for 200 people in the ward that I was assigned initially. And there was uh, two nurses and there were two to three ward workers initially assigned to each of the four wards in the building, which had, you know, 50 uh, people uh, incarcerated in each of the, the, the wards, 200 people in the building, uh, mostly young people under 18 years of age. And there was no off uh, service notes. There was no way of identifying anybody in there. The charts were sometimes a foot or a foot and a half deep in terms of paper, but nothing about who the people were. There were accident reports and 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 drug uh, uh, records and so forth. It was it was absolutely astounding to me. I I I, I just couldn't imagine it. And the time that I spent there, it took me a little time to really understand what was going on and why it was that way. Because, you know, when you walk into a job, you know, at some level, you're you're subordinate to the, the status quo. And I mm-hmm. didn't I didn't I, I didn't get it. I, you know, I had come from one of the most opulent hospitals uh, in the United States, um, both the Menninger's system and, and the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. And, and so I, I was I was really, really thunderstruck. And my my mentor, Dr. Richard Koch, was really a, a locus for people coming from all over the world in order to look at his model and what happened, what the, the way that system, his system worked in, in Children's Hospital. I'll get back to where I was in a minute. I just want to fill this piece in. Uh, he had a social worker, a public health nurse a speech and hearing therapist, a psychologist, uh, and the access to 
a, a limitless number of specialists in the most exotic world of medicine imaginable. <laughs> and so a family would come suspecting that something was not working right with their kid in terms of their development. And he would work that family up, the kid and the family up in such a beautiful way that at the end of, of that evaluation, they would sit down with the family, with the entire team, the, the, the service team in place, and they would work out a, 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 an assessment with the family of what was going on. And 20% of the kids that were suspected of developmental delay were within normal range. And the others were deflected from institutionalization, which was the mm -hmm. going uh, coda for the medical community. Doctors were telling families that had a kid with an early diagnosis of mental retardation or developmental disability, put that kid away, mm -hmm. have another yeah. one. You know, I mean, it was, it was universal. It was uniform. Like how young, how young, you know, on average, um, are kids getting diagnosed in that time period? Uh, sometime within the first two years. Sometimes in the first two years, you know, a, a decision is made. A kid may be born with Down syndrome or a kid mm -hmm. may be born with some kind of neurodegenerative condition, you know, that was obvious or spina bifida. Or, I mean, there, there, were, there were some right. issues that, that that would come up, differences that, that happened. But if the kid was damaged, quote unquote, in some way, mm -hmm. the medical community, the medical system, the medical uh, 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 the community would, would say, put the kid away, start fresh to the parent. I mean, this, this was the way it was. I mean, doctors yeah. were, and because we were not trained in dealing with that kind of differentness. And to a doctor, mental retardation was a, a progressive, uh, a degenerative condition that led to non-participation in the world of work. Mm -hmm. So the doctor was engineered in our training to essentially uh, uh, reject that person from being integrated in society. And we had a society that essentially blocked participation of anybody that was really different in terms of hearing, seeing, walking, thinking, you know, communicating in any way. And, and, and that training at Children's Hospital was so profound and so humanizing and so loving and so caring and so thoughtful and so competent and so confident in their ability to keep that child in the family and to support that family in order to embrace and, and nurture that child. It, it was it was really something that I just took for granted because I was trained in that context. I didn't mm -hmm. know anything different from my training. And I worked with Dr. Koch for four years while I was in medical school. And then, of course, in, in, in the internship, you know, he and I were, were already profoundly close to each other. So when I got to Willowbrook, you know, now, you know, four years later, five years later, to walk in to that place was really astounding to me. And it took me a couple of years to kind of figure it out, but it became obvious that anything I did to try and bring modern scientific developmental medicine into that relationship was seen as a attack on the administration and on the system. And what I learned from that system was that the state which had only provided in the state of New York, 
massive institutions, no, zero, no community-based services Mm -hmm. for people, essentially was taking Medicaid money in order to monetize those souls that were incarcerated and they were put in there until they died. Because as long as they were in the bed, in that institution, the state was drawing money every month, every year from Medicaid at at an astounding degree. And, And it was clear that there was no intention whatsoever to matriculate anybody out of that institution, lest the state lost that uh, Medicaid funding for that particular individual. Similar to, for example, the, the ADA for school children, you know, if the kid is not in the seat, then the, the, the federal money doesn't flow to the school system. Same thing with institutions. Institutions require people to stay in those institutions and they were not habilitated in any way in order to matriculate them, to put them back into open society. And so you can imagine the, 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 the violence done to the families who are told that they've made a terrible mistake having this child, putting the blame on the family. So that, that, that business of, of assigning a negative label to an individual that essentially puts them into a dehumanized role in society, less than human in society. And when you are dealing in a world where people are essentially commodified and monetized, regardless of where they are in the spectrum of society. And you say that this person is not a functional, valued human human being in that society. It's a death sentence. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so the interesting thing is, and I, I just want to bring this up early in our conversation, that means that 100% of society, apart from that small coterie of extremely wealthy people, are assigned to incarcerated, institutionalized terminus in their lives. We are all aimed at nursing home, assisted living, which have been essentially created in this gigantic Medicaid-financed culture. Medicaid has plowed $6 trillion since its inception into institutionalizing American culture. And people don't have the memory any longer after 50, 60 years of Medicaid, you know, uh, uh, establishment of what it was like before institutions were the norm in our society, congregate institutions. And so our strategy is, I mean, the the obvious issue, going back to my, my experience with Children's Hospital, is to replace long-term care, which is the package, the Medicaid package that essentially defines the need for out-of-home placement, out-of-home funding to the institution wherever the person is placed, and the imposed requirement for impoverishment. People can't have more than a couple, $3,000 of total assets lest they lose portions of their uh, so-called medical coverage, which is nothing more than incarceration and monetization of a devalued, extracted person, a surplus individual in society. 
as you write about in health communism, which is so brilliant. Um, so when I when I got to Willowbrook, it took me a little time to understand because, you know, yeah. I didn't know. I mean, my education didn't include explaining to me anything about socialism, anything about pacifism, anything about feminism, anything about imperialism, anything about about fascism. I, I didn't I didn't I, you know, I didn't know. And I was beautifully educated. I got to tell you, I went to UCLA. I went, you know, I mean, I, I you know, I, I had high level education. And and so it to, to learn this on the job about the cruelty, the 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 wanton violence of institutional oppression, of of crushing a person's identity and their physical reality, the lack of adequate food, the lack of adequate clothing, the lack of adequate medication, no planning for for uh, return back into society and as as the children that were put into willowbrook get older they wind up becoming first of all uh, violently injured all of them uh no medical care of any meaningful kind no meaningful diagnosis one to two workers on a ward of 50 people massively drugged massively drugged in order to compensate for the lack of staff so that they're essentially, you know, kind of knocked out, you know, unconscious most of the day, doing nothing, nothing in a stone room with echoing chambers and smell and filth, you know, that is the norm. And so when a worker gets hired, a poor person gets hired into state service in order to work in an institution, they walk in essentially uh, defined by the environment. They they essentially buy into the notion that the people that they're caring for are below them and essentially not human. And so they don't hurt, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't need, they, they don't feel, and they're essentially obstructed from interacting with their family at every opportunity that the institution is able to engender, which which has devastating devastating social and psychological consequences on society in general. So the, the work at Willowbrook was an effort to shut that monstrosity down. And uh, situations occurred in the institution where I decided, given my organizational skills at that time, that I was going to shut that mother down because it was it was a barbarity of maximum, you know, uh, uh, character. And it, it took time to kind of put the parents together. I mean, I had to find a constituency that had the clout in order to go against the status quo, which meant going against the governor and the state of New York, uh, ultimately. And, and, and finally, we agreed that we needed to file a federal class action lawsuit for crimes against humanity against the governor and the state. And that is the content, the story from beginning to end of my book, Public Hostage, Public Ransom. Well, in, in a oral history of yours, you called it a self-fulfilling economic nightmare, which I think is really a really important framing. And I just want to read a little bit from that oral history. Um, you said, I came to find out the violence little by little as I went along. The doctor had to review, had to daily review any problems that arose on the ward and every week renew all these massive tranquilizing drug orders. 
So I began to look at the charts. The charts were four to six inches deep, multiple charts. People had been there for years. They'd been brought there when they were three, four, five. They were now 10, 12. The charts were filled with incident reports called pink slips. Week after week, they accumulated about a cut here, a bruise there, illnesses. The place was rampant with tropical diseases that had either been instilled purposefully for study purposes, like they were inoculating kids with hepatitis A in order to study how to develop a possible hepatitis vaccine or German measles or rubella. They had every kind of intestinal parasite. We're constantly sending kids for blood work in order to make these diagnoses, in order to put them on these relentless amounts of rare antibiotics, in order to knock out all of these diseases that are strictly diseases of hygiene. And you go on to describe the chaos, the 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 horrific conditions, the smells, you know, the ways that folks are burned by radiators, the stickiness and pine salt goo build up on the floors. You know, this is a kind of I read a lot of horrible shit for the research I do, but like Willowbrook is one of those um, sites where when you do delve into the documents involved in the, in the case or in the consent decree afterwards, for example, you get into the original materials, you know, it's, it's, it's hard stuff. And um, I can't even imagine how dehumanizing and difficult that must have been for folks inside. But I think what you, you, you emphasize so well is the fact that while society saw the people inside Willowbrook as broken, um, you know, they're really broken by the conditions of the institution. It's not that they're broken people. It's that, you know, part of the way the institution was run, the ideology, the politics of it, the finance of it, that was productive of the brokenness that was being sort of ascribed as an intrinsic trait of that person themselves. It's a kind of horrific um, as you said, a self-fulfilling economic nightmare. And it's just such a it's such a difficult thing to sort of sometimes I think for disabled folks who uh, like myself who were born after Willowbrook closed and after the ADA, I think often it's really important to actually sit with what were conditions like in institutions, what was the kind of logic in institutions that perpetuated it. And so often it focuses necessarily on some of these moments where we're talking about like broad uh, ableist prejudice or things like that. But but what I think is also so important as you focus on, and I just sort of want to um, underline is, is the way that the funding mechanisms themselves, right? That's also a huge part of the driver here, the political economy of health, the political economy of the total institution and the kind of problem that it was supposed to solve, right, is ultimately a larger sort of big picture issue about, you know, who uh, deserves what in society and sort of a rejection of interdependence and a, a sort of focus on the only thing that makes you valuable is your ability to work, right? And I, I think it's so it's so um, helpful the way that you sort of frame your experience at Willowbrook, not just in terms of sort of like the direct interpersonal violence that's happening, but in terms of sort of the broader economic violence that's sort of mandated by the structure of reimbursement itself. The understanding this, it has to be understood as a universal yeah. reality that is going to ultimately define our lives as we age, because as we age, we become dependent in more and more ways. And at the point where we no longer can be sustained in our families, because our families have to work, they can't be with us all day long, whatever, 
you know, or, or, or cope with the, the difference of behavior or thinking or whatever, we wind up being put into nursing homes, into incarcerated facilities, congregated facilities, and essentially, you know, kind of turned into soil and green. I mean, that's, that's where society is going. And the fact of the matter is that 100% of the population, 99% of the population is going to experience institutionalization. So the people that got out of Willowbrook as a result of the federal class action lawsuit, they didn't go out to the street. The, the federal court mandated the state to individually place in a proper individualized site every single member of those 6,000 incarcerated people at that time until they die. And there's still 1,500 of them that are still left alive. But the ultimate irony, the tragedy, the outrage is that 100% of them are going to be returned back to smaller institutions, the metastasis of the Willowbrooks of, of America, because of aging, mm-hmm. not because of right. the, the disability. And, and that that is just so incredible. We are threatened. hundred. The population is under dire threat of being essentially put back into incarceration as we age. We're, we're dying early in institutional living. COVID pulled out 40% of the workers and the people in the institutions, in the nursing homes, as a result of, of its infectious you know, hammer. You know, and, and it just it, it's a, it's something that people have to wake up to. That's why the solution, the, the antidote to this crime is universal rightful health care that applies to 100 percent of the population with no cost of out of pocket at the point of service, comprehensive services and a rethinking of caring away from commodity based profit driven service. Mm-hmm. We do not have a healthcare system. We should not refer to what we have as a healthcare system. It is a medical wealth transfer system where there is services there, medical services, but not health care. And the reason in large part for that is that the public health system in America has been massively defunded and depowerized over the last 40 or 50 years as capitalism has taken a grip of the medical delivery system as one of the most profitable centers of wealth in the entire economy. The medical delivery system in America consumes 18 plus percent of the gross domestic product. And despite that, despite that massive expenditure, 30% of the general population of America does not have the capacity to get good services. They either don't have any coverage or they can't afford to use the coverage they have because of the imposed deductibles, co-pays, billing, uh, and the insurance costs for uh, their care. So that little by little, and we're seeing it escalating as the system capitalizes, there is a remoteness and an alienation of the medical uh, personnel, the medical workforce in our system. So it's hard to get an appointment. It's hard to get a sense of connectedness between various different problems that you're having because people are complicated and they have different systems that require treating, you know, as, as we, as we go along. 
it, it, the, the situation is is abhorrent. And the only solution is for the general public to understand what's in its own interest and to demand a different experience of being cared about, cared for, you know, in our society. That's why we have to think in a very radical way about ending all profit in medical services. All profit has to be eliminated and people have to be returned back to being an asset in society, regardless of where you are on the spectrum of differentness. That's actually where I wanted to to jump in because, you know, you have been now in your career sort of at the forefront of this movement in California for a, you know, a, a model of this kind of healthcare system or pushing for a model of this kind of healthcare system that you uh, are talking about. And it occurs to me that, you know, we've seen, I think now I count something like uh, over 70 different pieces of legislation across the country to, to try to create s- sort of single payer at, at the state level in, in something like over, about two dozen states uh, with varying levels of kind of legislative traction. Um, and it, it occurs to me that like your theory of the case, or your theory of what needs to change is, is in some ways slightly different. Um, has some some commonalities with those efforts, but is also different uh, and, and distinctive in certain ways. And also that your theory of power, your theory of how it's going to happen or how these inequalities that are generated by the current political economy of healthcare that we have in the United States are going to be uh, changed. And so I wonder if you could talk about kind of where you see this model of care that you're that you're talking about in relationship to those other single payer efforts. And then also kind of how you see it being different in terms of your like political theory of, of the case. So that's a very, very profound challenge, Philip. And, I, and I, I really appreciate you opening that door because the single payer movement has been going on for a long time. Back uh, in the, the 60s, there was a piece of leg- federal legislation to establish a national health service in America. And and by the way, the Veterans Administration is a very interesting example of a totally integrated service delivery system that is being provided as a national health service. That is, every worker in that system gets a check from the federal government. It's a single payer source. The federal government pays every health worker in in that field and all the people connected to the military have potential eligibility for whatever they need in the way of healthcare services. And there's a policy issue that is that is an issue. For example, uh, people that were exposed to uh, uh, very toxic chemicals, uh, you know, in, in warfare or, or whatever, uh, essentially, you know, can go to the federal government in order to demand eligibility for coverage and care for the problems that were created from those experiences in wartime or in the military experience. So the other piece of that puzzle is that there are models around the world where people, where governments essentially driven by either socialist leaders or the general public marshalling their strength in order to demand proper care have established universal single payer national systems of care. And secondly, you have the question of whether or not the people own the system or whether the corporate world owns the system for profit. If the corporations own the system, if 
they hire and fire. If they define the 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 costs, whatever, then you you have a essentially a totalitarian governance over the medical delivery system where the people getting cared for don't have influence over the way in which they're cared for. So where in the world is there a system where the people own the medical delivery system? That is the people own and generate a healthcare system that comes from their consciousness and their clear understanding of ownership and control over that system. The answer, Cuba. Cuba is the only real country where the people own the system. So when you look around at the at the progressive countries, I mean, there are countries around the world where you had socialist revolutions that were essentially being driven. And with those revolutions came medical services and healthcare owned not by profit-driven corporations, but potentially by nation states. So that is an enormous transitional historical reality that we are living through right now, because the whole issue of moving away from profit-driven goodness in society is still in progress. For example, we have a public in America, we have a public education system. We have a public transportation system. We have a public fire department. We have a public army. If we had a universal, rightful system in America, and that would mean that everybody would be in a Cadillac quality, single tier of care, which would not be defined by class or race or gender or age or geography. We would have a universal education system that would be tuition covered for uh, the workforce in the field that would transform the cultural competency of that workforce, which now is heavily uh, dominated by racial animus. And so the, the single payer system in America for the last 40 or 50 years has been rigidly confined to the transformation of the financing of the delivery system, not the the construction and the organization of the delivery system. Mm -hmm. And so we have spent, I spent a year with 40 of my confreres from around the country, people like ex-presidents of the American Public Health Association, major leaders of medical organizations in the country, major activists in terms of health rights to craft a comprehensive, comprehensive world-class model of health care predicated upon my experience in looking at the Cuban system and being in Vietnam and being in China, being in India, being a lot of places in the world, looking at the Scandinavian system, and my tremendous experience in the individualized framework of developmental disability services in America, where individualized planning is a crucial component. And that's where lifetime care comes from to replace long-term care. Long-term care is the Medicaid financing to put people away into an incarcerated state until they die. Lifetime care is planning to deflect people from exactly that terminus, is to move people back into and to keep them into the most integrated, inspiring, respectful, identity 
preserving a reality of their lives until they die. And so what we need to be looking at is creating communities. And that's where the whole notion of the original name of the model that I created was the California Lifetime Care Health Act. And it, it is a website. It's called CALCHA. It's the acronym C-A-L-T-C-H-A dot org. Uh, or as I've uh, advanced in thinking about this going national, I now call the model ourhealth.pub.pub.public, ourhealth.pub. So if you go on your on your computer to ourhealth.pub or calcha.org, it'll take you to the same website that it breaks down in, in, in various components an explanation of the comparison of what we have now with what we ought to have. And it, it is a push to stimulate the current single-payer movement in America, which is highly fragmented in many, many states and in many, many communities inside any given state, to rethink caring, to understand the need for where public health fits, to understand the need for deinstitutionalization and decentralization of the current empires, because even the nonprofit medical institutions in our society, like for example, here in California, the University of California has a whole set of medical schools and a whole set of major institutions around the state, but they are empires. They are in separate areas of the state. They are usually built and expanded without public accountability to areas where economic development is the objective, where you have the crisscross of covenants and redlining to block racial integration in housing historically in America, you have the absence of medical facilities for care. And wherever you put a medical facility, you build an economy instantly. Restaurants, um, um, stores, um, um, a whole variety of support entities that come around any quality clinic that's invested. So Kaiser and, and University of California and the major uh, hospital organizations use their billions of stored secret money in order to capitalize the construction of medical services in the perimeter, in the rural, in, in, in the suburban areas where they want wealth to be developed. Not in the rural farmland areas, but in the areas outside of the inner cities where there is mostly a white dominant uh, you know, population, which is where this emphasis on racial discrimination is so prevalent in our society. And so in any meaningful single payer system of, of health care, meaningful health care, that has to be absolutely eradicated. And if not even an, an ulterior effort to reparations in order to compensate for the losses that have been experienced over the last two centuries in America as a result of slavery and anti-Latino, anti-Asian, anti-immigrant, you know, animus that essentially grips and, and, and is shattering American society. One thing that might be great to take a second to talk about is sort of what the vision of community health or community level health actually is in this kind of lifetime care model. Because I think 
it can be really easy to sort of hear community health and sort of think, okay, well, so we're thinking sort of standard range of nonprofit community health organizations. Or, you know, I think folks are so used to sort of hearing lines like, Medicaid expansion is part of the path to single payer or, you know, that uh, community health is really important and sort of all these frameworks, you know, there are all these kind of ways that we talk about community health, but it's not it's different than what you're talking about, first of all. But it also, um, you know, never really necessarily gets at like what the actual sort of point of these things are. And one of the ways that you talk about like community level health and lifetime care, it's not just sort of about setting up cradle to grave care and making sure that everyone has access to it, you know, regardless it's also about, you know, where that care is located, <laughs> how close that care yeah. is to the people in your life. Can people get there autonomously and independently? Or do you need to travel two hours to get there? You know, and the sort of community level health framework also is really intentional in your model um, that you all have developed where the idea is not just to necessarily put things in the community, but to also give communities some direct control in terms of sort of governing, planning, provisioning, et cetera. Exactly. Exactly. So so first of all, when I was a kid and I got sick, my mother would call either my pediatrician or my my general physician. They would come to my house. They would come to my house with their bag. And they would take care of me. I wouldn't go to the office. I, I wouldn't go to the office. They would come to my house. In Cuba, the physicians essentially work in their offices uh, in the morning from eight to noon. And at noon, they shut the door and they start walking through their neighborhood where they live and service seven to eight hundred families in the immediate area of their office. And so they they have data where they know exactly where everybody is with regard to their age, their, their, their medical conditions, whatever it is, they know. And they are subordinate. They, they are owned by the people of their neighborhood. They make the same roughly amount of money as the people in their neighborhood, their peers in their neighborhood, and their caregivers that essentially belong to the people. So what, what we're talking about First of all, is neighborhood. Every county in America has a bunch of legal entities called neighborhoods. Neighborhoods are legal entities. And if we were able to mobilize neighborhood assemblies in partnership with the local public health system in each county in America in order to monitor, assess, plan, prioritize what kinds of services needed to be there in order to make people feel well, to ensure that people had civic engagement, creativity, well-being, security. Now, all of us at the deepest level bear fear that we may not be able to cope with something going wrong with us. And whatever the system is that we have to put in place, we have to eradicate that deep-seated universal fear and insecurity that comes from not knowing for sure, A, if something's going to happen that can't be addressed, and B, if we have to pay for it, which we can't afford or may not be able to afford. So in a healthcare, in a healthcare system, we have to be looking at food, transportation, housing, jobs, um, uh, well-being, uh, engagement, and, and integration and celebration of life as a 
as a manifestation of health and well-being. Look at all the people, for example, that are hanging on to shreds, fragments of medical coverage, doing mind-numbing work, security work. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. People that are Medicaid estate recovery. It's 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 incredible. Yeah. If we if we had a rightful system, the liberation of energy back into society would be breathtaking. And so the issue is not what's it going to cost for us to transform our system, which is going to take some time to do once the policy is in place. The policy has to be in place. We have to have a law that requires universal single payer health care for every single body. And then the question of transforming this god awful thing that we have now, this barbarity that we live with, this fear mongering situation, this monetized, dehumanizing, violent system called medical care in America, you know, has to then be transformed into its exact opposite. The public health system is a system that operates in terms of looking at the whole of society. They see healthcare as a social phenomenon, not an individual phenomenon. So the, 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 the partnership between the neighborhood assemblies and the local public health departments and the proper financing of the public health system to make sure that there are diagnostic labs in every county, to make sure that there is a comprehensive public health capacity in every county at the local level, at the house level, at the neighborhood level, at the street level is crucial. In Cuba, the system is organized in tiers from the home to the national level so that every 10 square blocks, there is a polyclinic and then a specialty clinic begins to get organized at the higher level towards the larger uh, provincial area and so forth. And so the, the specialty clinics uh, are, are not necessarily at the local level. They are as they're needed as the population numbers grow and especially needs become, uh, you know, uh, uh, appropriate. And it's the same thing, you know, in, in other countries where you have universal health care promised, not necessarily provided. In Canada, for example, there's an organization called uh, uh, Doctors for Medicare and Can Canadian Doctors for Medicare in Canada, which is similar to my organization here called the Physicians for a National Health Program, which is 30,000 of us here in the United States committed to driving single payer health care for the last 30, 35 years. We just had our 35th anniversary. And we have to have clinic clinical people, not necessarily medical people, but clinical people, social workers, uh, uh, anthropologists, psychologists, nurses working in the interests of the general public, thinking about the general population and figuring out how to get services down to the individual in their home, in their community, so that people do not have to travel more than walking distance to get to where they need to in terms of, of services. And as you are confronted with the need to individualize services, on a single tier basis in our delivery system, you begin to think creatively about what people need and realize that the only way we're going to figure this stuff out is to somehow debrief the people, the people themselves, the public has to begin thinking about what they need to be well and secure and essentially uh, 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 healthy, you know, in the broadest sense of the word. And so the, the model that we created 
the calcha.org model, the, the ourhealth.pub model, which is on the website, is an attempt to try and radically expand the conversation nationwide in every state and nationwide in order to grow and 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 humanize and detail what healthcare is all about in our single payer legislation. So in the model, first of all, we need to think about the differences of different kinds of health needs in the culture. For example, the education system requires a different kind of a team working with kids in school, whether you're talking about preschool or college. The mental health community and addiction community require a special kind of a team. The homeless, the houseless people require a certain kind of a team on the street. Team, not individuals, team working together in order to cope with the social determinants that essentially influence and affect all of that. The people in the rural community and the farm worker community require a different kind of, of a professional team working in that environment to deal with the realities of work, production, creativity, society in that area. And we need to essentially globally budget all post-secondary health professional education in America, globally budget every college and university in America that's training health workers for an uh, exchange year for year, for every year that we, we, we essentially cover the tuition for medical students and nursing students and dental students and psychologists and social workers and public health workers for service in what we would call a national health core or a, a state health core that would assign those individuals year for year to rural and urban health deserts, medical deserts, where right now they're missing services, they're missing hospitals, they're missing clinics. We need to redistribute the, 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 the workforce and the workforce needs to be culturally competent. They need to be multilingual, multiracial, whatever it takes in order to identify with, to respect, to love and care for the people in their constituency. And as we put people into uh, barren medical service areas, people will essentially lock into those communities. They'll build relationships in those communities as they care for their people over a period of two, three, four years that they had their tuition paid for as health workers. And we take profit out of the system and we take cost out of the point of delivery, not even one penny should be charged because we know from our data that if you put a penny cost, you reduce utilization. Mm -hmm. There's no reason in the world to force people to have to jump through any kind of a barrier or hoop to feel secure and well and, and, and fear free. Yeah. I mean, you know, regardless of sort of how we deliver care, right, there is a market and an economy and wealth created for the the nation or the state or the private company or the individuals involved when someone gets medical care in the US you know to end the long-term care system and to actually stand up you know what <laughs> was sort of promised in the Olmstead decision by the Supreme Court that 
home and community-based care would be prioritized and institutions would be closed and, you know, that would be made available. If we were to stand those kinds of things up, like lifetime care, it would functionally end the nursing home industry, for example. Exactly. And the charity industry. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, I think, where the the challenge comes in, which is that you've you've had the ability to observe some of the, uh, I guess I would say, uh, political uh, roadblocks that have that other that other um, campaigns for single payer across the country have you know encountered right. The only there's only one piece of legislation at the state level that it, it was really watered down uh, for single payer the past in Vermont, and then it was basically abandoned. Uh, we've had you know in a way much more modest uh, attempts at reform in in states like New York. Uh, Massachusetts, um, I think, compared to what you're talking about. So I- I'm kind of curious, one, kind of what your diagnosis of those, I, I guess I wouldn't, you know, maybe not failures yet, but 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 failures to pass at any rate, um, and how you see that playing into the kind of organizing that you're doing uh, around this model um, now, because it occurs to me that you're actually, by being more expansive, you're potentially building in more uh, coalition partners. And I'm, I'm curious, I mean, you're taking on, you're certainly taking on more enemies, but at the same time, you're, you're potentially building in more allies. So I wonder if you could talk more about that. You know, th- there's a number of simultaneous problems here, which people have to be able to tolerate. I mean, you have to be able to tolerate a certain level of uncertainty and impossibility here and understand that if you've figured out something that's impossible, it's worth devoting your life to. <laughs> right, right, right. That, of that's, course. that's what the adventure in life is. So, yes. first of all, when you look at all elected politicians, the way they get elected is by raising hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars to get elected. Where do they get that money from? They get that money from the corporate economy in large part. So, first of all, you have political body where the overwhelming majority of state and federal legislators are bought off or they're blocked from really understanding, really wanting to understand the need for a comprehensive, non-capital based healthcare delivery, a public utility, a major public utility, that healthcare should be an asset, a public good. So that the reality of that is very, very disarming for most people. Most people can't imagine going against City Hall. I mean, they have to understand that the only way this is going to happen is when the general public rises up in order to demand well-being and security. The same way that the general public has to rise up in order to demand a correction to our carbon economy. And in order to to have a true healthcare system in America, we have to transform the carbon economy foundation of the medical delivery system. Now, what that means is that ultimately we're going to have to go to a direct vote of the people in order to work through referendums and propositions in states and if necessary at the federal level in order to bring this about. And we have to somehow figure out how to defend against the disinformation, the misinformation, the lying, the the incredible uh, threats that are going to be leveled against the population 
by the cartels, by the medical industrial cartels and by the big banks and by Wall Street in order to protect profit in medicine, which is the largest hunk uh, short of the military industrial complex of the American economy. Well, I think also in a way there's a lesson to be learned here from your experience with Willowbrook, right? Um, in your oral history, you talk about sort of coming to the realization of um, where the money was going, where all those federal Medicaid dollars were going. You know, um, they were getting all this money to manage the services, to manage the building. Clearly, it wasn't going into you know the care itself um, at all. Not at all, right? And you say, you know, the interviewer asks you, you know, so where did the money go, you know, and, and sort of what happened to it, right? And you say, that's interesting. That's the mystery. That's the show game. You have to watch where the money is under the cover of the shells that you're pushing around. We never could really understand where the money disappeared to. I never really saw. All the stuff was new to me. You've got to understand. I'm a doctor. I'm in there, I'm holding people, I'm hugging people, taking care of people, writing prescriptions, sewing up lacerations. I didn't really think about and didn't understand radical economic research. What I did find out, little by little, was that there was a whole economic, financial, big money aspect to what the hell was going on. That the institution at Willowbrook, that institutions in general, were major economic centers that hired thousands of people, purchased millions of dollars worth of stuff that these were all professionals that had to be properly ideologized in order to be complicit with this antisocial scheme and feel and believe that they were doing good and operate in compliance with policies of deprivation and reduction of resources on a continual basis. And so that part and the part um, you know, of your story where you've, you've, you've mentioned uh, so far in the conversation of like having to sort of get parents involved and work against the paradigm that the institution was imposing on parents in order to achieve the recognition that what was going on in Willowbrook was not okay. Because one of the things that was done is when kids were put into these institutions, there were ways of sort of socializing that uh, familial separation, right? Like kids were not allowed to see their parents for certain periods. Oftentimes, you know, there's all these accounts of parents requesting visits for their children in institutions and it being denied, you know, that kind of separation um, is part of developing the, the consent, right? And maintaining it. And so what I found so fascinating about this one sort of passage, right, is like you're going into this really not paying attention, not explicitly looking for these kind of economic pathways to emerge and they become so obvious. And what, you know, you you do and what you and your colleagues do with the community at Willowbrook is sort of gradually together unlearn some of these sort of frames that um, are required and require all of this maintenance in order for folks to continue to be complicit in, in systems of the status quo. Because ultimately, you know, there is broad support for single payer. There is broad dislike of um, how austere Medicaid is, right? And um, even 25% of Republicans, I think there was polling as recently as like last year that said, you know, 25% of Republicans would support eliminating private insurance and standing up state single payer. You know, you're someone who has seen kind of the worst effects of, um, you know, quote unquote, public insurance, right, through the Medicaid uh, institutional relationship. And yet you're still willing to sort of 
trust uh, in these larger models in a centralized um, single payer system. And I think that's really important, right? Because I, I think oftentimes one of the things that I'm often asked by people is like, well, <laughs> how do we trust that they're going to do it right this time, right? And the only way um, to trust that is by getting involved literally in, in shaping the policy. But I think, Phil, to your point, you know, this framework and the sort of push to expand single payer rather than to sort of make single payer more palatable, more um, appealing to the people who are already profiting off of these systems of extraction and our quote unquote system of healthcare, um, you know, rather than appealing to those folks, right? Like if we sort of broaden the framework of what single payer is trying to do and actually what it's trying to sort of stop, disrupt, or um, sort of redistribute these these economic pathways, that actually opens up single payer in, in a way that um, reminds me sort of of the constituency that you all were trying to create in order to both expose what was going on in Willowbrook and also attempt to sort of begin organizing a coalition to close it. And, you know, New York had no options other than institutions. It became like one of the most famous cases of deinstitutionalization in in the country. It's certainly the most well-known. And I think it really speaks to kind of the constituencies that had to be put together in that fight specifically, um, just in terms of sort of understanding, you know, there were thousands of jobs sort of at stake in the fight to um, deinstitutionalize New York. And a big sort of question was public sector unions and what they felt and what the guards and the workers and, you know, and it's a similar kind of relationship of dealing with sort of people in current jobs who have economic pressures and incentives to kind of maintain the status quo, dealing with having to kind of replan, you know, this is building a similar constituency of having to overcome, you know, ending certain industries, whether that's the nursing home industry, the private insurance industry, and also building new things. And I think, you know, part of what a lot of like the kind of frameworks for single payer are, are working towards is just a very different understanding of building power and building coalitions. And what I think is most interesting about this model is actually, you know, as Phil pointed out, the kind of theory of power that's embedded here, which is that, you know, rather than look towards a kind of moderate third way you know, across the aisle center politics, this is actually more <laughs> turning it back on the third way and saying, you know, let's build the kind of constituency, not through respectability or through moderation, but through, you know, really pushing this and really asking ourselves sort of how can this be um, expansive and how can this be sort of explicitly redistributive in the face of, you know, as you called like this not being a healthcare system that we have in the United States, but a medical wealth transfer system. We, we, we need. So my my origin is very emotional, very subjective. My my approach to what I do is heartful, is purely heartful. I'm not interested in making money. I'm not interested in being wealthy. I think if you choose to be a healthcare worker, the joy, the pride, the fulfillment has to come from seeing the transformation in other human beings that are struggling and suffering from the result of your relationship to them. And we need to be thinking about how to humanize and, and, and generate the very best possible imaginative way of approaching caring 
and the linkage of everything and everybody in society. We are at war. We are at war with the money-making, profit-driven capitalist system. And to the extent that we can become aware and understand that driving for a self-interested healthcare system is the universal profound policy that is going to build unity and community among the people. It is something that all of us need, all of us fear the need for, and, 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 and approaching this thing in an imaginative and inspired way, creative way, connecting the arts to this campaign, connecting education to this campaign, connecting child rearing to this campaign, connecting working with the aging population to this campaign, dealing, dealing with every conceivable communication channel in our culture in order to imagine and create a caring world, a caring society, and speaking to people's hearts. Because everybody, everybody is fearful of the current situation, and 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 some believe that the status quo preserves self-interest is fallacious. It's a fundamental error in people's understanding of the forces that are interested in squeezing every dollar and squeezing our life out of us, because our lives don't matter to the corporate cartel community. They don't matter whatsoever. The, the lives of the people at Willowbrook did not matter. They were kept alive at the most minimal, minimal level of, 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 of indifference in order to suck money out of them, in order to build uh, Rockefeller's Albany marble and gold uh, uh, palatial uh, office building in Albany. There was, a, there was a, a budget freeze in New York when I first came to work at, at Willowbrook that essentially resulted in one third of the budget of Willowbrook being transferred to build that Albany Mall. When the, the death-making reality and the fraud that the state of New York was perpetrating against the use of Medicaid dollars, which it, it essentially upcoded people's disability to right. maximize federal reimbursement occurred. And it was clear from Geraldo Rivera's expose on ABC television at the time about the atrocities and the, and the, and the, the intolerable crimes that were being passively committed and actively committed at Willowbrook. The governor never, never came to look at the problem. And it had been preceded by, by the gunning down of the prisoners and the, and the guards at Attica. I mean, the, the, the state in its current iteration is engineered by extremely wealthy, extremely wealthy people tied to Wall Street, tied to capitalism, tied to profit, tied to self-interest. And we are faced, if we are to have a healthcare system in America, we're gonna have to confront on a daily basis in everything we do that inhumanity, that, 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 that criminality, because essentially they are using our lives as a way of enriching themselves. The whole concentration of the billions of dollars of capital in the hands of the Facebook people and the 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 uh, 
uh, the Tesla people and so forth, is all stored labor. Every dollar that is extracted in profit from production is prohibited from being used as a source of work production in our culture. And that contradiction is so grave, so sobering, so shocking, so implacable that we have to be ready to speak to, engage with each other, build a, a sense of community between each other in order to challenge and address those crimes against humanity and to redistribute wealth in a meaningful way that will uplift everybody in society into a new world. We're living in a world so, so overtly, clearly suffering from deprivation. And I see people, I just, I, I'm, my, my, I'm just, I have this knot in my chest. You know, what can be done? What can I as an individual do? And what I can do as an individual is to change health policy in America. That is the ice pick. And your book, Health Communism, is the theoretical foundation and explanation and historical analysis of exactly what that's all about. America has to wake up to justice. Well, thanks, Bill. I really appreciate that. It means a lot that the book has resonated with you so much. I know Phil had a question. I want to leave room for him to hop yeah. in real quick. And and I think that what you're what you're talking about here, Bill, is is that many of the most important sort of barriers to reconstructing this political economy of healthcare come from within the system um, itself, right? You know, it's 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 really illustrative that as the you know productivity has failed to generate profits for capital, they've plowed more and more money into a system uh, that they can call themselves nonprofits. And, mm -hmm. you know, essentially use public programs as a way of a, generating a constant revenue stream to, to generate so-called nonprofit uh, revenues. And exactly. the 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 and I think the thing that you mentioned earlier about, you know, there is this kind of uncertainty and risk aversion that even highly mm -hmm. mobilized actors in politics feel the sense that if we confront this system, we might get a worse deal who knows than the one that we have. And I think this is, you know, can, you know, some sense that, uh, you know, I might not like what I have, but, uh, you know, gosh, uh, you know, it, it could be worse, right. That I often, I mean, I hear it in colloquial speech, but I also think that it's operates at a macro level uh, is, and, and to some extent, right. That, that risk aversion isn't just, you know, false consciousness, like it, it might even be rational because you don't know who's going to be in control of things and who might screw you over. But I think that the challenge that that uh, you're confronting is how to build solidarity, uh, because mm -hmm. that's really the only antidote, uh, isn't it, uh, to that the kind of fragmentation of our interests is to is to build a culture of solidarity where people can see look, I, I might get what I want in, you know, year one, or I, I might, you know, avoid some some negative outcome perhaps in, in year one. But in reality, if we don't actually attack this system head on and, and confront the things that drive it rather than the symptoms, um, we're going to be here again. And probably we're not going to be here, but we're going to be in a much worse place in 10 years, which is, I think, why even uh, countries with fairly advanced quote unquote advanced, I don't, you know, 
uh, uh, systems of, of, of care provision or redistribution are dealing, are confronting the long-term care challenge too. And, and that's like, I think the fact that that's a keystone of what you're talking about is really significant because it's not just the states where that is, uh, where, where that horror show that you described is, is extant. I mean, it exists elsewhere. And I think it's something that, um, if we're going to do anything about care provision, like we have to, that has to be part of the struggle. Mm-hmm. Let me let me just say bluntly, the system cannot be worse than it is or that it's getting. We, <laughs> we cannot yeah. afford to continue on the path that we're on because it's a relentless expanding uh, cost and a declining consequence in terms of caregiving. So the the the, the issue here is 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 seeing everybody in society as you. We have to move from an I to a we and from a them to an us. We have to understand that everybody will benefit if we're all in the same pot together. But we have to begin looking at each other as family. I think that's the perfect place to leave it for today. But this has been really nice, Bill. I really appreciate you walking us through everything in such detail. I'm so grateful for your interest and your understanding of this field. I mean, you're asking questions that nobody is asking and tolerating answers that nobody wants to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's what we do best here, you know. Exactly. And if you want to check out Bill's book, it is Public Hostage, Public Ransom, Ending Institutional America. And again, you can check out the entire model at calcha.org or at rhealth.pub, which are also going to be linked in the episode description. Patrons will catch you Monday in the main feed. For everyone else, we will see you later next week. If you'd like to help support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore, and pre-order Jules's new book, A Short History of Trans Misogyny, coming January from Verso Books, or request them both at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As yeah, always, I would, suggest, I would suggest that they pick up five copies of Health Communism and give it to their best friend. <laughs> Don't just you know hoard one copy. You got to <laughs> spread this word around. You heard it here first, right? Pick up five copies of Health Communism. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Texture like sun Lays me down With my mind she runs Throughout the night No need to fight Never a frown With golden brown Every time Just like the last On her ship Tied to the mast Two distant lands Takes both my hands Never a frown with golden brown Mm -hmm. 
temptress Through the ages she's heading west From far away, stays for a day Never a frown 